Okay, Vicuña. Ah, uh, that's about the animal. Here we go, Vicuña coat. It's $24,000 for a coat. Oh my God. Um, hey, they take PayPal. How much for a sweater on this site? Oh my God. It's $8,000 for a sweater. Wow. In the world of fiber, not everything is created equal. Sure, you've got wool and fancier stuff like silk and mohair, but then there are the true exotics. High-quality cashmere, bison, kiviet, or Alaskan muskox. And then there's vicuña. That sweater I was looking at online, it cost $8,000 because it was 100% vicuña fleece. I'm now in a small boutique looking at sweaters. One that catches my eye is made of 100% alpaca. It's soft and super cuddly, and at $95, it's a pretty good bargain. Maybe you've never heard of Vicuña, but it's the alpaca's wild relative. That $8,000 sweater I saw online is a cousin to the $95 one in my hand. But how on earth can two sweaters, almost identical, be so astronomically different in price? In today's episode, we hear a tale of two radically different sweaters. Join us as we travel from the rugged highlands of Peru to a small farm in Colorado. And while our journey starts with stalking the wild vicuña, it ends with the discovery of something else, something completely new. You're listening to Fiber Nation, and I'm your host, Alison Korleski. The high plains of the Andes Mountains extend through west-central South America, Peru, Bolivia, Chile. A vast strip of wilderness, it has volcanoes, salt flats, and miles and miles of dry grasslands. It's also home to huge herds of alpaca and wild vicuña. Even if you're not a fiber person, you would probably recognize an alpaca. They're four-legged teddy bears. Their faces are so fluffy, it can be hard to see their eyes. And they sound like kazoos. And they are such a part of our popular culture that you see them on t-shirts, coffee mugs, and in a thousand internet memes. Vicuña, though. Vicuña are the magical unicorn version of alpacas. If an alpaca is a teddy bear, vicuña look like a cross between a deer and a space alien. They're fine-boned, elegant, dainty, even. But they only look delicate. Vicuña live in some of the toughest terrain imaginable. 14, 15,000 feet in altitude, in a place where most of us would be gasping for oxygen just sitting down, they can run 30 miles an hour. And they can endure the freezing temps and heavy storms so common in these mountains. If you see alpaca and vicuña grazing side by side, they're pretty easy to tell apart. Alpacas look like the Michelin tireman, but vicuña only have thick fleece on their back and sides. But oh my God, what a fleece. It's short and dense. It's almost like fur, but it's also light and soft. When you shear it, vicuña fleece looks like a solid felt rug, and it feels like a puff of air. That $8,000 sweater is made from the most valuable fleece in the world, and not just because it feels great, but because great things do indeed come in little packages. 
a vicuña takes two or three years to produce just one pound of fleece. And that fleece is really hard to get. Vicuña are wild, so you have to catch them first. And the annual roundup of vicuña is called a chaku and dates back to the Inca almost a thousand years ago. I want you to imagine a human chain stretching for up to a mile or more across the grassland, slowly closing in on groups of wild vicuña. People swing their jackets around to drive the animals, or they hold up a rope covered in colorful streamers. They move slowly on the animals, kind of creeping up on them, pushing them into tighter and tighter groups, and then they herd the animals into these large netted enclosures. Then you need to picture several dozen squirmy, bucking wild animals that want to be anywhere but there. Once they settle down, though, the shearers move in and select one animal at a time, restrain it, sometimes by holding it, sometimes by sitting on it, and they shear the precious fleece. We have a couple videos of modern-day chakus on our show notes page, and you really need to watch them. During the Inca Empire, vicuña fiber was so fine, so rare, and so hard to get that only Inca royalty could wear it. A vicuña garment or blanket otherwise was a death sentence. But here's the sad part of the story. When the Spanish came to South America, they destroyed the Inca Empire, but they fell in love with the Inca vicuña. They decided, though, that the traditional chaku ceremony was way too complicated and time-consuming and just slaughtered the animals for their coat. And that practice continued well after the conquistadors. In 1532, there were perhaps two million vicuña, but by the 1970s, they were down to just a few thousand. But this story does have a happy ending. Because realizing that shearing was better than shooting, because unlike dead vicuña, fleece grows back, Peru, Bolivia, and other countries reinstated the chaku. And again, the cloth they made was reserved for royalty, or at least the super wealthy. The luxury goods company, Loro Piana, was the only one allowed to make clothing from vicuña fiber. Their contract also mandated the price that they had to pay the indigenous people who did the actual roundup and shearing, and that was maybe $200 to $400 a fleece. Going back to that $8,000 sweater, I do have to ask myself if this is really fair trade, but it is more than what many people could earn in a year. And by making one or two companies the sole exporters and processors of the fleece, any vicuña that didn't have their trade market on it was illegal essentially the blood diamond of the fiber world. Today, wild vicuña have come back from the brink. I think there's around 350,000 of them. And you can still get beautiful, marvelous things made from their fleece, if you can afford it. We need to leave the highlands of Peru and head 4,000 miles north to a small farm in Colorado and hear directly from someone at the heart of this story. Normally we wouldn't have this little group of young males here, mm -hmm. but we're waiting to do our fiber sampling or get our micron counts so we know who to geld, who to keep for possible breeding. I'm with Jane Levine, the owner of Jefferson Farms on the outskirts of Denver. Flower and vegetable beds surround her big farmhouse. Several low buildings open into paddocks, and workers trundle between them with wheelbarrows full of hay. It smells like late summer and livestock. Originally a healthcare worker, Jane never intended to become a rancher but her parents were ailing and she wanted to be closer to them. So that led to getting this property, which is zoned agricultural. So that led to, now we have to become farmers of some degree. 
So we did a little bit of hay production, which on a five and a half acre parcel is not much. That led to my mom seeing the advertisement in Martha Stewart magazine for alpacas. So this is back in like 1995, 96. So I went and looked and there, you know, you look, you were hooked is pretty much how it worked. They're irresistible animals. So we started with two males. That quickly led to a few more females. Alpacas in the late 90s and early 2000s were definitely a thing. They're hardy and don't need a lot of food. They produce a fleece perfect for cozy sweaters and fancy blankets, and they are freaking adorable. In fact, a lot of brochures advertise them as an investment you can hug. It started as a novelty livestock by people who didn't have a livestock background. True confession here, I was almost one of those people. And I remember reading a lot of info at that time about showing your alpacas and winning trophies and making a lot of money off of them. Champion alpacas sold for $25,000, $50,000, even more. And then there was the fleece. I remember a lot of people predicting that alpaca fleece would soon replace wool and that this was the birth of a whole new fiber industry in the U.S. It never happened. There's a lot of reasons for this. Probably the most important is that most of these new breeders didn't actually know anything about breeding. Jane just shakes her head when we talk about this. So many important traits were not paid attention to. Alpacas naturally coarsen up as they age, just like a lot of animals. Fleece that starts out as baby fine fluffy puffs can turn into something that feels like asphalt. They lost their fiber value so quickly, you know, by age four or five, that essentially you had an animal that was producing rug yarn. So you had an animal that couldn't pay its feed bill, let alone produce other animals that had a huge value beyond, you know, the second or third shearing. So the value of alpacas and their fiber began to plummet. It was like having your mortgage go underwater, only fuzzier. Quick digression here. What is this alpaca fiber? Though they're both fleece, alpaca is not wool. It's more lustrous than wool, but it doesn't have the boing. It's, it's slick, it's got an almost soapy feeling. And alpaca is way warmer than wool. I wear alpaca only on super cold days. And alpaca is most definitely not vicuña. Alpaca can really range in quality, but even the best fleece is nowhere near as fine. And don't get me wrong, because alpaca is a wonderful fiber, but it's just not magical. Jane may have fallen for alpaca madness, but she quickly lost interest in so-called champion alpacas that won prizes but lost value. She wanted champion fleece that could produce steady, long-term profits. And I wanted to focus on the fiber because that was the new world that it opened up to me, is how gorgeous this fiber is. She describes the alpaca boom as an excessive inflation of the value of the animal. Let's put it that way. Okay. Because you weren't having any product capable of supporting the cost of that animal. People weren't doing much with their fiber. Their fiber quickly lost value. Forget $400 a pound. The market value of alpaca was a few dollars an ounce at most, and the quality was all over the place. Jane knew that in order to truly succeed, raising alpacas in the U.S. had to become a commercial enterprise, not just a fuzzy lifestyle choice. Breeders needed to join forces, scale up, and make alpaca fleece a standardized commodity, not a novelty item sold only at fiber festivals and local yarn shops. The big downfall in the whole alpaca market in my opinion, 
is we've stayed with a cottage industry where fleeces are individually processed. You will never succeed mm -hmm. until we have true commercial value and you know quantity processing of that fiber. But that means the fiber has to be uniform, has to be within a half inch of staple length. It has to be within the same you know, two to three micron range and color. And so as a fiber industry, American alpacas never got off the ground. In fact, here's an unexpected plot twist in our sweater story. That $95 alpaca sweater I was looking at, it wasn't even made in the U.S. It came from Peru, where there were maybe two million alpacas and a lot of infrastructure. That's why it costs so little. Jane and her husband survived the alpaca bubble. But by the early 2000s, Jane was determined to create a sustainable business model for her farm, one based on fiber. And that meant developing near-perfect alpacas. They had to produce a very fine fleece for their entire lives, and that's 15, maybe 20 years. That fleece had to be easy to spin. And Jane wanted intelligent, independent animals that were still easy to handle. That's a lot to ask for in any animal, but they kept trying. We went and kept expanding the herd. And I saw Phil Switzer up there and he brought in the first few pack of Acunas. Back up a sec. We've been talking about alpacas. What are Paco Vicunas? Like the name suggests, they're kind of a genetic throwback to the Vicuña of South America. That's the alpaca's wild cousin behind that $8,000 sweater. And these Paco Vicunas would be the solution Jane had been looking for. Coming up after the break, learn how a cloth of the future had its roots in the ancient past. Jane and I are sitting at a large table in our dining room. It's covered with fiber samples and files and invoices and brochures, and Jane's phone is binging every few minutes. Her animals are having a lot of babies these days, and she's trying to stay on top of things. In between bings, she's trying to tell me about Paco Vicuñas. So the alpacas are the domesticated animal, and they were domesticated down from the vicuña. The vicuña is the wild ancestor of the alpaca. So, just a second, we might be having a baby. Are you having a baby? Okay. Note to listeners, that baby alpaca was born the next morning, and it was a total bummer to have missed it. But we do have a photo of the newborn in the show notes page. Jane starts telling me about her friend, Phil Switzer, arguably the godfather of Paco Vicuñas. Phil Switzer was an ARI screener, which was the alpaca registry. So he was one of the people, they had teams that would go up into, you know, Peru and Chile and Bolivia, and farmers would submit all their alpacas that they wanted to sell for importation. And they would be screened for fineness of fleas, for health defect. But what Phil was noticing is that a lot of the really fine-fleeced animals were not passing the screening process because they had an overabundance of guard hair. Guard hair. Long, stiff hairs that poke out of the downy undercoats and fiber animals. They're usually a big no-no. It's prickly and pokey and basically a buzzkill when you see it. This guard hair, though, is a key vicuña trait because their fleece is so fine and dense, it can easily turn into felt right on the animal. Guard hair kind of breaks up and protects that fleece and keeps it from matting. 
And if you looked past those pokey hairs, the rejected alpacas actually had a much finer fleece than the ones that were making the grade. In fact, fleece that seemed a lot like the Cunha fleece. Phil was on to something. He changed up his selection process. So he began actively selecting animals that had a much finer bone structure. He was looking actively for guard hair and also a bigger eye and a more refined face. So he was looking for physical characteristics that looked a little more of a Cunha-ish than they did alpaca. And those were the original animals that he put into quarantine and imported into his farm up in Estes Park. And that began his breeding program. And so I visited him, we were friends, and I absolutely fell in love with them. Jane started breeding Paco Vicuñas, and they changed everything. So we're back at Jane's farm, and she's introducing me to her Paco Vicuñas, or PVs for short. Some are coming over to check me out, others are lying flat in the sun. Some have squished themselves into several large oval water troughs, like they're enjoying a bath. Playing in the bathtub. These, they do like water. She starts pointing out the differences to me. But you see the, the light bone structure, they don't have heavy leg wool, the way alpacas mm-hmm. have the real stovepipe legs. They have the heavily wooled faces and necks. Alpacas are adorable, but they're kind of doofy looking. And there is nothing doofy looking about these. They're poised, they're alert. They're curious and they followed me, but they always stayed just out of reach. So I guess before we let our boys out, we'll go feed our baby. PVs are normally excellent mothers, but one needs a bottle feeding. So you see, she's quite eager to get a bottle. Baby fed, Jane wants me to pet one of her females. Yeah, so let me grab her. Okay. And you can kind of feel her fleece. Come here. So you can feel the density and the softness. That is unbelievable. It's like petting a dandelion. A big, squirmy dandelion with huge eyes and soft lips that are trying to eat my phone. In 30 seconds, I can see why Jane is hooked. And here's another twist in our story. Back in Peru, when he saw those weird-looking alpacas, Phil had discovered a total accident. In fact, they weren't even supposed to exist. But in the high plains of the Andes, there are no fences. So you'll see a large, you know, area of plains that has sheep, llamas, alpaca, vicuña, and Wanaco, all commingling, competing for the same pastures. So we feel that accidental breedings happen fairly often there. And most of the offspring of those accidental breedings, you know, the, the local alpaca ranchers, they can spot that and they would actually um, slaughter those animals because it introduces more guard hair. In the ultimate irony, ranchers were culling alpacas because they were too much like Vicuña. The ranchers couldn't see beyond the guard hair to the delicate, ultra-fine fleece beneath. See, alpaca fleece is much heavier than Vicuña, and there's a lot more of it, maybe 7 or 10 pounds per animal. If you get an alpaca with Vicuña genes, though, you get an alpaca whose fleece is a lot lighter, and there's less of it. To a rancher whose profits rely on weight, that and guard hair are total deal-breakers. They saw poor-quality alpacas. Phil and Jane, though, they saw something valuable that needed rescue. 
So we're trying to intervene early enough in the process to catch those few animals that might be the result of that crossing or have more vicuña in their background because they didn't have the llama genetics introduced. Those pack of vicuñas gave Jane what she needed for her herd, turbo-charged DNA, and she wasn't about to waste it. We're back in the barn in this tiny office where Jane keeps her breeding records. It's hot and fans blast cooler air around us. A series of whiteboards cover two walls. This is how we track our breedings. So we have this large whiteboard where we have all of our breeding males listed. And next to the name of the breeding male, in parentheses, is the bloodline that they are out of. The whole purpose of the breeding program is we wanted to introduce the superior traits of Cunha, the uniform fineness, the density, the ability to maintain its fineness over the lifetime of the animal, which is what every wild animal does, with the domesticated traits of the alpaca, which produces a better staple length, um, a temperament that is more manageable than a true vicuña would be, and an animal that is hardier and more vigorous than perhaps, you know, the highly domesticated alpaca is at this point. So we're trying to merge the best traits of both breeds. Beneath the whiteboards are filing cabinets full of records. Every year after shearing, Jane sends samples from every fleece to be tested. Micron count, staple length, that's how long and fine the fibers are, the age of the animal, everything gets recorded year after year. We won't use a breeding male until they're about five years old because we want to make sure that they maintain their fineness. Otherwise, we've shot ourselves in the foot. Jane's trying to step away from the cottage industry of alpaca into the narrow but more stable luxury market of Paco Vicuña. I felt they were able to hold their fineness, and fineness equals dollar amount. And by trying to get into the luxury market, the luxury fiber market and high-end specialty fibers, I knew I could always sell at a good price. So I wanted to compete with Kiviet, with Truvicuña, with Cashmere. You know, alpaca wasn't high enough on the scale. It was selling at 250 to 350 an ounce. Kiviet, you know, 25, 35, $50 an ounce. That's the market I want to be in because that's the market that survives all the economic ups and downs. That brings us back to the two sweaters. Many of us can't afford a pure alpaca sweater, even one marked down to $95, particularly in an economic downturn, like what we're going through now. The super wealthy, though, the people with closets of Birkin bags and Prada shoes, they're pretty recession-proof, and they probably wouldn't blink at spending thousands of dollars on a luxurious garment. Jane's not looking to make an $8,000 sweater, though. She recognizes that a lot of indigenous people in South America make a living off harvesting vicuña. We don't have any desire to have any true vicuña, none whatsoever. And we don't want to impact their market. We want the preservation of that breed. And there's plenty of room in the luxury market for something new. And that market fits her current business model and her herd of 500 animals. It is definitely a high-end, small-access market that we have. But my goal is to keep expanding the national herd, to keep everyone aligned with the same goals and standards, and to run a co-op of this fiber to increase our production capabilities so that we can market 
you know, it'll be a smaller market, but we can market products that will have consistency and value and more people will have access to it. While I've never seen true vicuña, and I probably never will, Jane gives me a sample of her Paco vicuña fiber. It is jaw-dropping. A single ounce fills over my lap, and it feels like warmth and air. I showed it to a colleague of mine. Laura's been spinning for eight years, and she knows her fiber. Check that out. Oh, holy Mm. that is soft. Wow. That's one ounce. Are you kidding me? That That is one ounce. That's like so much right there. It's the size of a thorax. It is stupid soft. Like, I don't even know. Like, I've never touched anything like this before. Um, so, so I, I can borrow some of this, right? Like, no. I, I, yes. No. Yes. No. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> I asked Jane if there's anywhere I could buy a scarf now, if I could even afford it. No. <laughs> it is, it is completely almost a bespoke. We will custom knit. We will line up custom producers, mm-hmm. but it is simply a one-on-one relationship at this point. Mm-hmm. So one of my goals is to get more involved in men's accessories. High-end men's accessories is a market I want to be in because I think the colors of these fibers, the softness, the weight of it is just a slam dunk for men's accessories. This fall starts up our fiber production more seriously again. We'll be putting in two years worth of fiber into processing and we will develop a men's accessory lines that will go into the high-end men's clothing stores. Jane is a visionary. With her Paco Vicuña, she's creating a new fiber breed, one that will create a new market for luxury goods. The accessory line she plans will probably be more expensive than my alpaca sweater, but far, far less expensive than the Vicuña one. Jane's creating a product that will let her own business survive. I ask her if anyone else is doing what she's doing, or if she's the queen of an empire that she's building herself, one animal at a time. I'm pretty much the queen with my royal court of helpers. You know, we all work together quite closely, so they might think of me more as she who must be obeyed (laughs) at this point than the queen. We want to make sure that if it says Pacavacuna, it comes from registered animals, the fiber is certified, it has been tested, we guarantee the quality of the production, as well as the standard of living for the animals themselves. That is our goal. And it's a very long-term goal, like years and years. But I suspect she'll get there. Like most of you listening, I'll never own a Vicuña sweater. But maybe someday I'll be in a shop and see a beautiful scarf labeled Paco Vicuña. And I'll know not only where it came from, but the woman who made it exist. Thank you for listening to Fiber Nation. If you like what you hear, rate us and leave a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Fiber Nation is produced by me, Allison Korleski. Our co-producer and audio engineer is Daisha Clay. Fiber Nation is part of Interweave and Golden Peak Media, and our executive podcast producer is Jared Mayer.